Okay. About to begin our Bible study tonight. We're in Judges, the sixth chapter. And this is the story of Gideon. We'll be in Gideon. We'll be studying Gideon the first, the next two chapters. As a judge and prophet to God's people. So this chapter covers the call of Gideon. Last week, or the last time we met, we looked at Deborah and Barak. This week and next week, we're going to look at Gideon and the call of Gideon. The famous story of Gideon's fleece. So as we turn our attention to the word of the Lord, let us pray. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for uh, celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this uh, past week, earlier this week. And we just thank you, Lord, for his gift of salvation that he has made available to all who believe in him. And we thank you, Lord, for being back in Bible study tonight, back in church in our midweek service. Lord, we ask you to bless our time in your word tonight. Give us illumination by your Holy Spirit. Reveal your truth to us as we study this text. And Lord, fill me with your spirit to teach this text well, to teach everything in context. Lord, let us see more about your character and who you are and what you require of us, Lord. Let us also see our need for a Savior. Our need for one who is greater than us. One who is higher than us. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord may he shine through. As we study tonight. In Christ's name. Amen. amen. So. Tonight we're going to look at chapter 6. And. Uh, if you didn't read ahead. We're going to be introduced to. The Midianites. Who are going to oppress Israel. Now at the end of chapter 5. Uh, we saw where the Lord had given Israel rest for 40 years. So now we come up on the same cycle again. Remember uh, apostasy, oppression, or slavery. And then they call out to rep of, of, of repentance and then God delivering them. We're going to see this pattern again in this chapter. So we're going to take the first section verses 1 through 6 and then 7 through 10 and then we'll get into the story of Gideon after that and remember apostasy is always departing from the faith and every time Israel apostatized or departed from uh, the faith in Jehovah God they fell into servitude to a pagan nation so chapter 6 begins by saying this. This is the word of the Lord. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was whenever Israel had sown Midianites would come up also 
Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents coming in as numerous as locusts. But they and their camels were without number and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. That's the key verse right there or the key phrase in that section. But you have not obeyed my voice. And what happens when we don't obey God's voice? We fall into sin. <coughs> Excuse me. So back to the beginning of the chapter. Again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They had 40 years of rest. 40 years. But in their prosperity, they, be they became complacent. They became complacent. Prosperity can do that to the human heart. Our, our default heart is one of sin and rebellion against God. That is our sin nature. When things go well, we can become complacent. When things go well, we can stop praying. We don't have that desire to serve the Lord anymore. We don't have desire to read our Bibles. We don't have desire to fellowship with the saints. We don't have desire to even be around saints. We, we, we can become so complacent. And that's what Israel did. They had 40 years of rest. So apparently they became complacent. They laxed in their obedience to God's commands and God's laws and God's precepts. And what did they do? That led them to stray from the Lord. And remember, idolatry and apostasy is evil. Look at what the text says. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. What was that evil? Departing from him. So, what did God do as punishment to Israel? He delivered them into the hands of Midian. So God brought them into bondage through the oppression of the Midianites. Now, this was actually an example of God's grace and God's mercy to Israel. Because what did this oppression end up doing? Turning them back to God. Think about that. It would have been worse if God just left them alone. You know, I, I, I talked about this, I think, the last time we were studying this or uh, the time before that and also in the uh, book of Joshua that God's chastisement of his people is an act of mercy. You say, how can you be merciful when you're chastising someone? Because you're doing it in order to correct them. 
instead of just letting them be instead of just letting them just go off off the way with path to the the road to self-destruction you correct them so correction is an act of mercy so God giving them over delivering them to the hand of Midian was an act of mercy and an act of grace because it was meant to bring them back to God you see how bad it is in this oppression you see how bad it is having to serve these pagans so guess what you want God you want to worship God because look it's like the uh, parable of the prodigal son he asked for his father's inheritance he took it he went out he partied it away end up living in the pigsty and then he came to himself as the scripture says and said I had it much better in my father's house because he, he, was, he was prodigal he, he strayed that's what a prodigal is a, a, a person who strays he, he strayed away and then he, when he got out there he realized I had it much better that's right Phyllis I had it much better so that oppression that he faced led him back to his father. So when God chastises us because of our sinful choices as believers, he chastens us, as it says in Hebrews 12, because he loves us. God loves those whom he chastens and whom he chastens he loves. If you're not chastised by God, then you're not one of his children. So this being delivered into the hands of Midian for seven years was an act of God's grace and an act of God's mercy because it will make them turn back to God. And I'm going to tell you something. It's always worse. It's always worse if God just leaves them in that oppression. That means he's turned his back on you. It's always terrible when God leaves a person in their sin. When he turns them over to that rebellion. As he does do with people who insist on their rebellion. The scripture says he gives them over to a reprobate mind. That's Romans 1. He gives them over to a depraved mind. A wicked mind. He, he gives them over to that. that. That mercy and that grace is done. Because they just insist on rebelling against God. But God has a special love for his people. And what does he do for us? He shows us his grace and mercy by chastising us to lead us back to him. Father, forgive me for straying. Father, forgive me for forsaking your mercy and your, and your grace. Father, forgive me for not reading your word. Forgive me for not praying to you and just doing things in my own strength he shows that mercy to us amen just as God showed that mercy to Israel as sister Lord said he's showing that mercy to us because he's a merciful God he chastises us because he loves us he tests us in order to grow us in our faith. But it's all to draw us back to him. God never chastises us to push us away from him. God, remember, we have to always remember this. God doesn't punish his children. Christ was punished for our sins. He doesn't punish us. 
Punishment and chastisement are two different things. Punishment is not corrective. It is punitive. It's like a sentence. But chastisement is a form of correction, of putting you back on the right path. God doesn't punish his children. He punishes the sinner, the unrepentant sinner, but he doesn't punish his children, those who are his by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He chastises us, but he does not punish us. I have to remind us of that. You can say, oh, God, I must have did something wrong. God is punishing me. No, he's not, Christian. Now, if you're un-Christian, yes, he is punishing you. <laughs> Amen. So uh, verses 2 through 6, again, he gives the details of that. I'm not going to belabor uh, that by uh, going over it, but uh, Israel made for themselves dens. They were so humiliated, they had to move to the mountains. They made for themselves dens and caves and strongholds. That's humiliation for them. They didn't live in the land. They had to go up in the mountains and, and hide. They had to be humbled. They lived as cave dwellers. Instead of properly civilized people. Think about this. God gave them all this land to inherit. But they were so oppressed by the enemy that they had to go in, in, in mountains and caves to live. That's not the way God's people are supposed to live. And that is what sin does to us. Sin drives us to do those things. We end up doing things we never thought we would do. We end up living ways, we end up living ways that we never thought we would live. That's what sin does. That's what rebellion does. That's what the oppression of sin does to us when we live in rebellion against God. It, it, it leads us into the dungeons of life. It leads us into the dark places of life. Places that we never thought we would end up. Things we, would, we never thought we would do. Thoughts we never thought we would think. That is what sin does. That's what rebellion does. And that's what happened with Israel. And sin against God, and guess what? They had to go up and make dens in, in the caves. And then when they sold their food and their harvest, well, the Midianites would come and take up the harvest. They came in the time of harvest to steal what the Israelites had grown to the point where they had nothing to eat. They had no sustenance. So Israel's sin had made all their hard work and toil worth nothing. All their produce and livestock was stolen after they worked hard to bring it to fruition. And this is what sin does, people. Sin robs us of what we work hard to gain. There are many accomplished people in this world who lose everything because they won't stop their sin. They won't stop it. So this depression happened as far as Gaza. So it was far and wide. The Midianites. Now, now the Midianites were, were desert dwellers. They were basically nomads. They dominated Israel because of the use of their camels. They said, but they and their camels were without number. And children of Israel, what did they do? They cried out to the Lord. Here we go again. They cried out to the Lord. But guess what? It's good that they cried out to the Lord. That oppression. Sin is oppressive, people. I always remember that. The greatest oppression people need to be delivered from is the, oppress the oppressiveness of sin. The oppression of sin. 
sin oppresses you. Sin is a cruel oppressor. Sin doesn't relent. Sin doesn't give up. Sin seeks to destroy you, to annihilate you. That's what it does. There's nothing nice about it. It only gets worse and worse. Sin never gets better. It only gets worse. It only progresses. Until ultimately you're destroyed by that very sin. So after a long season of humiliation, poverty, being dominated by an oppressive enemy, Israel finally cried out to the Lord. The sad thing about this is prayer was their last resort instead of their first resource. Friends, we must never make prayer our last resort. May we never make prayer our last resort. Prayer should be our first, our default. When trouble strikes, pray. When distress hits, pray. When times get hard, pray. When times are great, pray. Because we can forget the Lord, just as Israel did after their 40 years of, of rest. It should always be our first resource. So what does God do? He sends a prophet. He sends a prophet to them. So because they cried out, the Lord sent the prophet who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And what did God say? I brought you up out of Egypt. So God spoke through the prophet, reminding Israel of all he did for them in the past. Israel needed a reminder. And sometimes when we face different crises in our life as believers, we need to remind ourselves of what God has done for us in the past. Because we can easily forget. We can think so much in the present and forget about the past graces that God has shown to us. Lord, you provided before. You're always a provider. I know you'll provide again. Now, we don't have to do like some of these, these uh, gospel choirs sing, sing falsely, do it again, Lord, like God got to show out for us. No, God didn't put on a show for us. God, God puts on a show for himself, for his own glory. We don't have to tell God, Lord, do it again. Lord, put on a show. The Lord showed up and showed out. No, that's, that's a wrong view of God. It, it sounds okay. God showed him and showed out. God is always there. So if you say God showed him and showed out, you're saying it there are times where God doesn't show up. Amen. God always is. He doesn't show off. It is not. God is God. He is God. He does what he does for his own glory. He doesn't need our adoration and praise. God is self-sufficient in himself. God doesn't depend on another outside of him he doesn't depend on our praise God doesn't need our praise he doesn't need it we need his glory 
He doesn't need ours because we're sinners. So we have to remind ourselves of the faithfulness of God, of what God has done for us in the past. So it says here, I brought you up from Egypt. Just remind them of the love of God. The God who was loving enough to deliver them from Egypt, he still loved them enough to now deliver them from the Midianites. Same, same God. And just remind them of the power of God. That God is powerful enough to deliver them from the Midianites. That just as he was powerful enough to deliver them from the Egyptians so God sent this prophet this messenger to tell them that they <laughs> what their real problem was your your problem is not the Midianites your problem is not those seven years of of oppression from the Midianites that's not your problem what is your problem you have not obeyed my voice it wasn't that the Midianites were so strong it was that Israel was so disobedient. It's not that our enemy, our adversary, the devil, is so strong and mighty. It's that we're not obedient to God, that we don't look to God. And it makes our enemy seem stronger and more powerful than he actually is. Israel thought the problem was the Midianites, perhaps. But the real problem was with them. Because it's human nature to blame others for the problems that we cause. It happened in the garden. Eve blamed the serpent and Adam blamed God. Eve said the serpent beguiled me or deceived me. And Adam said that woman that you gave me. So he, he wasn't blaming Eve. He was blaming the Lord. So since the beginning, our first parents, we, what they say, we passed the buck. We blame others for the problems that we cause. Israel could not blame the Midianites. They had to blame themselves. We can't blame God when we fall into sin because God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. James 1 says that. He says every man is, every man is tempted when he is enticed by his own desires. God doesn't tempt anyone. The temptation comes from the desires that lie within us. Those sinful desires that we have to pray and ask God, Lord, take those sinful desires away from me. We cannot blame anyone else. God said, you have not obeyed my voice. So the deliverer is called and his name is Gideon. So begin at verse 11 here. We may get through all this tonight or we may not. We'll see. Now the angel of the Lord. And I think we dealt with this before in the previous two chapters. The angel of the Lord here is uh, the Lord himself. This is uh, uh, Christ, a Christophany where uh, Christ appeared in the Old Testament. So the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terrible tree which was in Ophrah, Ophrah rather, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, <laughs> you mighty man of valor. So here, uh, getting this, pressing the wine in the wine press, that was, that was his job. He was a wine presser. You know, they had the little, a wine press. That's what they did. They had to press wine with their, press the grapes and stuff. Uh, with you No, know, he was threshing wheat in the wine press. They Same thing, just uh, threshing that wheat. Mm-hmm. That's what they did. So that was his job. He didn't have cattle. He had to, he had to uh, get on the threshing floor, which was made of wood. And it was done under a tree. So God called him, Gideon. And Gideon said, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? We already know why, because uh, they didn't listen to the Lord. And where all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Now, so him threshing this wheat, it was a very hard job, so he was probably a little uh, distressed about this also. But the Lord told him, the Lord is with you. He told him from the beginning, you mighty man of valor. It didn't seem like the Lord was with him. It didn't seem like he was a mighty man of valor. He's down here threshing wheat. <laughs> oh, boy. He was a simple man living a very ordinary life. But the angel of the Lord saw something better in him. Then, of course, he has where all these miracles. So obviously Gideon had heard about all the great works of God uh, in the past. You know what he did in Egypt, what he did in the wilderness and all those things. And he's wondering why he didn't see the same works in this day. And again, Gideon thought that the problem was with God. Because he said, what well, now the Lord has forsaken us. And not with him and his nation as a whole. But again, the reason is because Israel had forsook God. And, uh, God didn't forsake Israel. It was Israel who, who, who forsook God. This, is, this shows the nature and character of God. God is faithful. It's not that God forsakes us, it's that we forsake God. We can never blame God for forsaking us because God is faithful. Paul says in 2 Timothy, though we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. It is not God who leaves us. It is us who leaves God. God is faithful. So the Lord did not forsake them. At all. So it says here in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said. Go in his might of yours. In his might of yours rather. And you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him. Oh my Lord. How can I save Israel? Indeed my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am in the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. This is very familiar because 
Some others in scripture said the same thing. So God said, go in his mighty voice. Who's going to give him that might? God is. Because it says, have not I sent you. It's hard to see that Gideon would have any might because he, he worked in the threshing floor. Gideon indeed had might. He was indeed strong. He was strong in the Lord. So he says, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? He was going to save it with God's help. And God said, surely I will be with you. That's the key. Just as he told Joshua that when they fought those battles, when they conquered the land, I will be with you. The Lord will be with you. The Lord is with you. Friends, the Lord is always with us. No matter how mighty things see that we have to overcome, God is with us. And we can be encouraged in that. He says, you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So what God was doing was uh, uh, assuring uh, Gideon not to build up his own self-confidence. But God was assuring him that he would be with him. Gideon didn't need to, uh, you know, show that he had confidence. He just needed more God confidence. That's what he needed. It's not only that God sends us, but it's that God is with us. Wherever we go, always the omnipotence of God. God is always with his people everywhere at all times. God is with you whether you're at work, whether you're at home, whether you're struggling, whether you're, whether you're surviving and, and, and thriving. It doesn't matter. God is always with us as believers, and we have that assurance that he is with us no matter what we can always take heart to that that he is with us he will not abandon us so Gideon of course before I forget Jesus said the same thing first of all God told uh, Moses in Exodus the third chapter he told him Exodus 3 and 12. This is before Moses, you know, when Moses was called to go and uh, deliver Egypt, Israel from Egypt. God told him, I will certainly be with you. There you go. That's what he told him. Jesus said in uh, the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28 and 20. That's one of my first verses I learned when I became a Christian. Lo, I am with you always even until the end of the age or end of the world he is with us always it is a blessing it is a great encouragement to know no matter where we are no matter what season we're in Matthew 28 and 20 always with us that's a promise so Gideon still wasn't convinced he wanted a sign. This is the Gideon fleece here. <laughs> so then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign. Everybody always want a sign, right? That it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here. I pray until I come to you 
and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from the ephah of flour. The Lord, I'm sorry, the meat he put in a basket and he put broth in the pot and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. <laughs> so this was the first sign. So he said, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay it on the rock and pour out the broth. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand. I'm just rereading here. And touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock. Think about that. Out of the rock. It was. That was a miracle. So it wasn't wrong for Gideon to ask for a confirming sign. But we don't always have to do that. We don't need a special sign from God that he loves us. We don't have to say, Lord, I need a sign to see that you love me. Because God demonstrated that on the cross. Why were we yet sinners? Christ died for us. Many things that are detailed in God's word shows us that he loves us. So we don't have to ask God for a sign for things like that. Now, sometimes, you know, when we need guidance, it is possible to look for a confirmation in different ways, but not for everything. Because sometimes the confirmation is in God's word. But man, just this miracle alone, rock. <laughs> I mean, fire coming from a rock. So the fire together, that was that was that was something. Yep, exactly. So Gideon reacts with awe and worship. He says, verse twenty-two. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, "Alas, O Lord God, why have seen the angel of the Lord face to face?" Then the Lord said to him, "Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die." So Gideon built an altar to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. So he gave it a name. The Lord is peace. And the Lord is peace is um, the Hebrew name here. I'm looking in my uh, outline here. It is uh, Jehovah Shalom because Shalom means peace. So when it says here, the Lord is peace, that means Jehovah Shalom. So God said, peace be with you. So he named that place Jehovah Shalom. So God gave him that sign. And he saw that this was the angel of the Lord, so he was terrified. So that's why the angel of the Lord said, peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Anytime people had a supernatural encounter with an angel, they feared. There was always fear. It wasn't like he went up and shook the angel hand. 
<laughs> okay, no, it wasn't like that. This was a supernatural thing. He saw something he had never seen before. So he feared God. He was afraid. So what did Gideon do? He built an altar. This was an act of worship and consecration to the Lord. And Charles Spurgeon said this about this part of this verse. He said, when Gideon is fully at peace, what does he begin to do for God? If God loves you, he will use you either for suffering or service. And if he has given you peace, you must now prepare for war. Will you think me odd if I say that our Lord came to give us peace, that he might send us out to war? So God was preparing him for, for, for war. That's why he sent that peace to him. Because we're going to see in the next chapter him going to war against the Midianites with the 300. So Gideon's ministry begins here in verse 25. It says, came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which has been cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. Notice how obedient he was to the Lord. The Lord told him to do something, the angel told him to do something and he did it. So Gideon took ten men again from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. So Gideon had erected this altar to the Lord. And that same night, God had said to him, Gideon made himself responsible to God. And God guided him. And what did God guide him to do? Tear down the altar of Baal that your father has. Now, this shows the pagan worship that was taking place in the community. Alongside the worship of Yahweh, these people were worshiping Baal, which is a false god. They tried to worship those two things together. And I'll tell you this, you cannot worship God. You cannot worship the God of the Bible and worship any other deity at the same time. Those two things are incompatible to each other. Light and darkness cannot dwell together. We must remember that. We cannot worship God and worship idols. Syncretism, we can't do that. Can't stray out of defense, like the old folks used to say. You're either for God or you're against God. You're either worshiping Yahweh in Israel's case or you're worshiping Baal. You're worshiping the pagans. So the altar is removed. Verse 28. There's going to be some controversy behind this. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was an altar of Baal torn down and a wooden image that was beside it. It was cut down and the second bull was offered, was being offered on the altar, which had been built. So they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the city of Joash said, bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. 
for Joash said to all who stood against him would you plead for Baal would you save him let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning if he is a god let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down therefore on that day he called Jerubal saying let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar alright so they were trying to find out who was responsible for the destruction of this altar and it was Gideon so Gideon was in hot water with the pagans he was found out immediately so this is how powerful Baal worship was when it says bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal this shows just how powerful Baal worship was in Israel at that time that they wanted to destroy Gideon these Israelites saying this now these, these wasn't the pagans saying it this is how strong Baal worship was among God's people at this time that they got upset because Gideon had torn that altar down they weren't supposed to be worshiping Baal in the first place look when people's idols are attacked they get defensive you attack someone's idols you attack something that someone worships they're going to get defensive they're going to get angry at you even if it's wrong that they do that even if it's wrong that they're worshiping those things or they idolize those things they still are not going to like the fact that you took that idol away from me or you talked against that idol think about okay in our culture you got people who love Beyonce her fans are called the beehive you got Taylor Swift fans that are called Swifties and you, you, you say anything bad about Beyonce boy they gonna come after you why because you're attacking the idol and what you're saying about that idol might be true but because you said something about that idol they're gonna attack you that shows you that exposes a person's idol when you speak out against it and they get so defensive and so angry at you that lets you know who they truly worship they don't worship God they worship man they worship idols so this this interest in Baal worship was so intense in Israel that they want to destroy the man who had set up who had taken down his idol so Gideon's father had made a very logical argument for preserving his son's life if he's a god let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down so since Baal was uh, the offended party he should be able to defend himself that's what he was saying if your god is so bad let him defend himself let him plead for himself but guess what it didn't happen it didn't happen at all the gods of this world cannot defend themselves the gods of this world are not as bad as people make them seem they're not as powerful they can't do anything they're, they're helpless they're, um, they're, they're impotent they're not as powerful as our God at all So they gave Gideon the nickname Jerubabel. So Gideon gathers an army in verse 33. 
Then all the Midianites and the Malachites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abiezrites, Abiezrites rather, gathered behind him, and he sent messages throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messages to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. So he had all these soldiers from all these tribes. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and this, this was a familiar pattern of the Spirit's work upon men under the old covenant. The Holy Spirit came upon specific people for a specific reason. This is not the same Holy Spirit that we have as believers. But in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, the Spirit of the Lord came on certain people uh, for specific, specific people for specific reasons, usually for divinely empowered leadership. Now, under the New Covenant, which we're under, the Holy Spirit is promised upon all who believe. The Holy Spirit is not just reserved for a special group of Christians. All believers, everyone who is in Christ has the Spirit of God living in him. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. But in the Old Covenant, it was for specific people for specific reasons. So when we see the spirit of the Lord, that's what we that's what we mean. He came upon them for those occasions. And he blew the trumpet. So Gideon was able to gather an impressive number of troops. And we're going to see there was 32,000 men that came uh, with him in battle. We're going to see that in the next chapter. So what does Gideon do? He begins to doubt. So the last few verses of this chapter say this. So Gideon said to God. This is the sign of the fleece right here. When I read this uh, last night, I was like, man, I, I love this miracle that God did. It says here. So Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look. I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, <laughs> he wrung out the dew on the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Don't be angry with me. <laughs> But let me speak just once more. So, Lord, uh, please don't be mad at me. Can you do something else for me, please? In other words, he says, let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. Amen. 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 So Gideon asked God to do a second miracle to confirm his word and then a third miracle to confirm it. Sometimes we can talk about putting out a fleece 
before God. Sometimes we try to ask God to confirm his word with a sign. Lord, show me a sign. I need a sign. You know, we're praying about certain things. You know, we want God to do certain things for us. And we ask God to do what? Show us a sign. Sometimes he shows that one sign and then we want another one. <laughs> oh, boy. But this fleece represents, um, it was covered with dew. There was some spiritual meanings to this fleece right here that one commentator said. He said the fleece represents the Jewish people and the area around it represents the Gentiles. This is what um, the early church commentator Origen said. Origen lived, I think, in the first century. He said the fleece represents the Jewish people and and the area around it represents the Gentiles, the pagans. He says the fleece was covered with dew while all around was dry, representing the Jewish nation favored with the law and the prophets. The fleece was then dry and all around was wet with dew, representing that the Jewish nation was cast off for rejecting the gospel and the gospel was preached to the Gentiles and they converted to God. So that's what uh, Origen said, uh, one of the early church fathers said uh, that that symbolized, that it symbolized Israel and the Gentiles. So Gideon, he showed unperfect faith, weak faith. He says, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. He showed weak and imperfect faith. And sometimes we can show weak faith also. One way we can show by weak faith, show weak faith, is by not trusting that God will take care of us. We ask for a sign when God tells us in his word. He says this in Matthew the sixth chapter. Take no thought what you shall eat or with what you shall drink or with what you shall be clothed. If I take care of the litters of the field, which neither toil not, neither do they spend, yet they are arrayed much better than Solomon. Will I not take care of you, O ye of what little faith? Will I not take care of you, O you of little faith? Our faith can be little just like Gideon's. Now Gideon didn't, te- didn't keep his word because God had fulfilled the sign once and Gideon said that would be enough but then he went back on his word and God fulfilled after God fulfilled the first sign. Yet the Lord was still merciful and gracious to Gideon and showed him a second time. And what this shows is God's example I'm sorry an example of God's gracious patience and long suffering with us as his troubled children that God is very patient with us even when we are weak in our faith even when we lack assurance although God gives us assurance we still show ourselves to be weak and needy but God is yet still gracious to us God was still gracious to Gideon Gideon said, Lord, I just need one sign. And he did the fleece and he said, Lord, 
basically, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for asking, but can you do another another sign for me? He was showing weak faith, and God was what? Patient enough with him to still do it, and that's where God is with us. Yep. And I'll say this about weak faith as we get ready to close. Weak faith is better than no faith. Gideon showed weak faith, but at least he still showed faith. Weak faith is better than no faith. It's better for us to have a little faith in God than none at all. It's better for us to have a little trust in the Lord than none at all. So we look at Gideon, we can't shake our heads and say, man, he had to do that, he had that, he had that God twice. Uh, we would do the same thing. We'd probably ask him five or six times. Many times God shows us a sign one time, but our faith is so weak that we don't take heed to that sign. Some people want more and more and more assurance. Just like people who say, oh, I want to believe in God. You know, I... I want to. I, I, I just don't have enough evidence. I, I need more evidence. No, you don't. It's all around you. You know that God is. You know that God exists. Look at creation. Look at yourself. He's, oh, I, 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 just need, I just need more, more signs. I need more evidence. No, you don't. You got enough evidence. You just have weak faith. Or in the case of an unbeliever, they have no faith. Exactly. They don't want to give up their sin. They love their sin too much more than they love worshiping God and serving him. That's a sign of no faith, not weak faith. But for believers, our faith can be weak sometimes. That's why he told his disciples, oh, you of little faith. But even in our little faith, God still contends with us. He still is patient with us. And that's the loving God we serve. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this sign. We thank you for this message. We thank you for showing us yourself in this text. We thank you, Lord, for showing us that we too are like Gideon, that we too are of little faith. Lord, we thank you for showing us the consequences of sin and apostasy and, and what, it, what happens when we depart from you. Lord, thank you for being so patient with us as your children contending with us even when we have weak faith Lord help us to show faith in you always remembering that weak faith is better than no faith until we meet again on the Lord's day may your grace be with us and your mercy in Christ's name Amen